the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a great question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. The journey to a COVID-19 vaccine began decades ago with research on earlier coronaviruses. Scientists built on that with months more of research and development, worldwide cooperation, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of diverse volunteers. Finally, they arrived at a safe, effective vaccine. The next step on the journey is yours. Discover the facts at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, to the uh, second half of this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner Program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. On the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter is with us as well. Welcome back, Henry. Thank you. Thank you. And last but not least, former high-ranking <clears throat> official in the administrations of Presidents Reagan and Bush, Mark Everson joins the uh, roundtable. Mark, welcome back to you as well. Thank you. Um, I have one more uh, one more piece out of Michigan, and then we'll uh, we'll move on to CPAC, which I think will be a lot of fun. Um, Michigan's redistricting commission will hold an open meeting to discuss the conflict between when census data will be available and constitutional deadlines. The plan comes after a closed session was initially floated, raising questions among legal experts who said the Constitution did not allow Michigan's Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission to meet in a closed session. Michigan's first-ever Independent Redistricting Commission faces an unprecedented delay in the census data needed to draw the new political maps that will affect the balance of power in the state for the next decade. The Census Bureau says it will deliver redistricting data to the states by September 30th, six months late. The commission, the commission will hold an open meeting at uh, 1 p.m. Uh, on the 5th uh, to discuss the timing issues. Should the commission be able to get some sort of waiver so it can draw new district lines for the next election as planned? Um, or will it I just not so. have I mean, the time? I, I would hope we can get them in place by 2022, but again, with 
with the census data coming in late, it, it's going to be a scramble. I, it's, it's, uh, it can be done, but I think it's going to be a scramble. And the way I feel about this, I don't think it matters. Because the way gerrymandering is, exists today, the party in power will decide <laughs> where to gerrymander. And this wretched back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. So when you go and draw these new but, districts, but it's going to change. But for now, it's they're drawn change. in favor of Republicans. <laughs> well, uh, at least no, in Michigan, the, the Democrats these are the ones now, that were done in 2010. Guys, yeah, but but no, the 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 Democrats got a chance to change that. So well, it's Republican it's legislature right now. <laughs> Well, no, I think this, this too, commission may, may really be. I think the commission may attempt to really be fairly nonpartisan, and that may be an advantage. <coughs> I hope but so. Again, just the mechanics of getting it all done in time, because by the time we get the census in September, and and you're going to have people getting petitions out in early 2022, that's that's going to be a it could be a rush job. Gerrymandering is not one of those issues that would threaten the democracy or the republic. It's it's. Um, it's a moot issue. And well, you're, you're, it, you're, it, it we've always had it, Henry. That much is true. Yeah, we've always true. had it. And, it, and, and I don't, and, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not hurt by it. I've seen these districts. If you take a look at Dale Kildee's district, he is an extremely, very, very much gender, gerrymandered. But am I offended by that? No. No. And besides, the cities, they have these districts that are favorable to black Democrats, and do am I am I concerned about that? No. Well, here, here's here's my thing on, on, on the, the gerrymandering, Henry. Is that I think when you gerrymander, so you've got all these one-party districts all over the place. What you tend to make is that the, you make the primary the real election, and what mm -hmm. when you get is you get a lot of liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans, and nowhere in the middle because the yeah. the real election is the primary, and, and like you say, well, in our in this area here. Once you win the Democratic primary for the most of Genesee County, you You go elsewhere in Michigan, once you win the Republican primary, you're pretty much guaranteed to win in November as well. Yeah. And that makes the parties far more divided than, the, than I think the public really is. So I think a lot of that partisan division we see, to some degree, is fed by this the gerrymandering that pushes Democrats to the left, Republicans to the right, and doesn't leave much room in the middle. But that's the nature of humanity. How can you change it? Because people don't want to change it. They, they look for opportunities that's favorable for them on their side, and that's how human beings do oh, yeah, no, I, I they understand the logic. Their I think both parties have done it. I mean, I, yeah. Republicans They're are doing both it now. Guilty. Well, I think yeah, the people that... that um, uh, overwhelmingly supported the uh, creation of this commission. We're actually looking to try and change how uh, how the yeah, districts are true. drawn. I have some hope it might actually work. I mean, we'll see. It's it's a complex process, and there could be a lot of glitches. But I I think there's at least a possibility it may. It but may again, it's timing, timing, timing. Who knew when they you know oh. sat down to you know come together as a group that this would be the year that. Uh, uh, data from the uh, census would be running late because of COVID and, you know, exactly. slow tabulation yeah. of numbers and so on. So let me and ask, what's at stake here? Mark. Is there, um, is Michigan going to lose a seat or you have about the same size delegation or what's, what's happening in terms of the substance here? It's, um, 
it's I don't think we're going to lose a seat this time around um, although we did the last time uh, but it's it's about redrawing the map right right but and it's easier to redraw it if, if, the, if the, you haven't lost a seat it's easier to redraw it that's all yeah that's that's true well, former President Donald Trump turned the Conservative Political Action Conference into his first post-presidential rally Sunday evening, pledging in a speech to purge his enemies from the Republican Party and hinting repeatedly at another run for the White House in 2024. But before Trump closed out the annual conservative gathering held in Orlando, Florida this year, a cadre of ambitious Republicans eyeing 2024 presidential runs of their own tried to put their spins on Trump's populist message echoing his grievances against big tech, the media, and liberal cancel culture in efforts to tap into the Make America Great Again base Trump built. Is there a burgeoning conflict between party purging and party building? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be a, the big issue for the Republican Party is that... Uh, I said before, I, I can almost see the possibility of a second party, whether it's a Trump party or a traditional Republican party emerging out of that. I, I think it's going to be a hot-button issue for a while. And, you know, we've got to be careful with purging people uh, because we don't agree with them, because that, those people transfer to the other side. I'm getting feedback. I'm sorry, guys. I hope I, you're not getting it. Uh, no, I just, I just caught it, Henry. I think I've corrected it. Um, but... Um, but that could be dangerous for uh, a party doing that. You know, it only takes a uh, time to see how that plays out. But I would be cautious to uh, purge uh, good Republicans and Democrats who are solid, uh, uh, who feel solid for their uh, their base and uh, who support the platform. And I mean, maybe people, the strangest one was Liz, Liz Cheney. I mean, I, you have to kind of shake yeah. your head when that happened. Because uh, there's, there's nobody more Republican than Liz Cheney, I wouldn't think, but she got censured. Yeah, but but the party can do that, you know, if they feel yeah. that there's a threat to the platform and you're not playing within the platform, they can do that. And then that's, that will soon pass, depending on how the uh, person being criticized uh, moves and how other people uh, see it. So think that will too pass. Well, there were definitely some people them, who were yeah. conspicuously missing yeah, from CPAC. Mitch, <laughs> Mitch McConnell, um, yeah. as you mentioned, Liz Cheney, uh, Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. Yes, those are key people, and they're uh, very important. But then there well, are other people that see the uh, horizon that I don't see, and maybe none of us see. And what comes out, we'll have to live with it or change it based on the will of the this people. A, this just has a long ways to go, I would say. You know, the CPAC thing is just just several months. What? What was it? Six weeks after we had a new president. So um, I think the pressures are just as great, if not greater, frankly, on President Biden. On the left, he's trying to... Uh, protect his left flank by going for this whole 1.9 trillion. I'm sure you've talked about that in previous weeks, but um, there'll be just as much fracturing on, uh, on the democratic side. 
if you yeah. will. It's, uh, I, I really believe. Um, and the Republican thing, it's, it's just it's we don't know yet how this plays out. There's a long ways to go, because uh, if 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 we throw all this money at the pandemic and, and the economy and everything else, but things <laughs> don't start getting better. And uh, if, if there will be food fights within the Democratic Party. And some of this stuff may dissipate. Trump may Trump may fade a bit as a as a player and uh, just sort of branding Liz Cheney or some of these other folks uh, for for not voting with them, uh, if you will. It, it, it could it could just sort of fade as an issue. I, I I'm not sure what's going to happen here, but I think the real action is probably going to be on the left before it is on the right. Well, let me squeeze in this this one because it's sort of related. The chief executive officer, I don't know if you saw this, of Goya Foods, Robert Unanu, I think I'm saying that right, made a series of false claims about the uh, 2020 election at the Conservative Political Action Conference on Sunday, a little more than a month after the company board uh, took action to limit his polarizing uh, public political remarks. In 2020, Unanu's uh, compliments of then-President Donald Trump generated controversy and calls for a boycott of Goya, which markets itself as the premier source for authentic Latino cuisine. After Unanu uh, questioned the legitimacy of the election in a Fox Business interview in January 2021, Goya's board voted to prevent him from speaking to the media without board permission, according to a source from familiar with the board's action. On Sunday, though, he appeared on the CPAC stage in Orlando and said, it's just an honor to be here, but my biggest honor today is going to be that I think we're going to be on the same stage as, in my opinion, the real, the legitimate, and still actual president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Should the Goya Foods Board be concerned about things their CEO tells them about the status of the company and its business? Uh, that's a violation of the contract, sir. And it's a violation of protocol. You, the board, the board is your boss. And they guide your direction. And you should at least try to uh, circumvent kicking off the board. Now, his life... Uh, with that company is going to be short-lived. Sounds like that. And, and it's, it's true on both sides of the aisle that corporations can, can take a hit from their political views. I mean, they, they can affect stock prices or sales of your commodity if you get out there too, too, too blatantly on either side of the aisle. I think and he's going to... And generally, corporations have avoided okay. that if, for, for business reasons more than anything else. Go ahead, Mark. Now, you know this... Uh, I didn't say it's anything not, uh, wrong about Donald Trump here. I didn't criticize Donald no. Trump. No, I criticized the board. Tell you what, okay. Will uh, Mark was about to say <laughs> something, and okay. and we have to go to a break here. But we'll uh, we'll pick it up, Mark, with you when we come back. Okay. All right. All right. If you're uh, listening to us on ninety-two point one FM WFOV, our voices radio in Flint. Uh, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We will be back with more Armchair Politics right after this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Mark Everson joining our uh, roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. And just before we went to break, Mark was about to weigh in on the uh, uh, Goya Foods uh, CEO and uh, his comments at CPAC this past uh, Sunday and any potential reaction the board, his board may have, as they have in the past, about things he has said that were... Uh, politically uh, controversial. Well, I, th- I think Henry's got it right. It's uh, it, you're an employee of the uh, company, but I think the real solution here, Tom, is that uh, this guy and the guy from My Pillow ought to get together and start their own sort of <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they they definitely uh, uh, could be the president and vice president of the. Uh, the Donald Trump fan club. <laughs> well, I a food company. <laughs> now here's somebody whose fan yeah. base is, uh, is, is shrinking. New York state lawmakers are moving to repeal democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo's expanded executive powers related oh. to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the top figures in the legislature uh, announced this yesterday, the bill announced by Senate majority leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins and Assembly Speaker Carl Heastie was introduced on Tuesday. Um, Under the legislation, the governor will no longer be able to issue new executive directives. Any modifications or renewals of current pandemic-related executive directives will be subject to legislative review. The bill is expected to pass quickly and go to the governor's desk within a week, and Democrats have a veto-proof majority in the legislature should Cuomo try to nix it. Um, first of all, to to my guys from Michigan, does this sound a little familiar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure does. And and is there a coincidence yeah. on the revelation of sexual misconduct charges against Governor Cuomo? He seems to be getting it from all directions now. Yeah, he sure is. He's, I mean, six months or a year ago, he was almost a, a rising star, a hero, and all of a sudden now he's... Uh, they will be forced out. You never know. I, the, it may not be a coincidence that all these things are coming out at the same time. I don't know. Mark, what do you How what long? do you think about uh, Cuomo's well, uh, situation? L- l- let me uh, digress for a second and tell a story because it's it's very pertinent to this. As you know, Tom, I, I ran the IRS for four years, and uh, you know that's you're nobody's favorite. <laughs> of that job and um i got uh, my my assistant came into my office one day i've been i'd only been on the job oh a month or two hey and mark said, just, this is parenthetical yes. but how long was it before you felt comfortable making that uh <laughs> that, that that statement about your uh your resume oh you know once you've been the irs commissioner you it you never shake that <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it, I told people I had a, a, a very important but obscure job as a deputy director for management at OMB before I went over to the IRS. And I said that they were similar, except for one thing. You'd go to a cocktail party when you were the OMB deputy director and you'd be standing around <laughs> and people would talk to you. 
And then one person would become very engaged because they were interested in procurement or they were interested in IT or something that was in your portfolio and the rest of the people would just stand there. The difference was when you became the IRS commissioner, uh, you, you had the same four people standing there talking to you. And uh, once, they, once they learned that you were the IRS commissioner, a couple people would walk away. Yeah, it's, it's, it's time to mingle. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. But it, no, anyway, so, so, but yeah, it, it's a job that marks you. But this is the story I was going to tell because it's, it's exactly the point about Cuomo. Um, my assistant came into my office one day after, oh, I don't know, I've been there a month or two, and she said, I have a congressman on the phone, and he's very agitated. And this was unusual because usually congressmen, they work for your office of, legislative affairs or whatever, or you booked a call. If, if and, it, and frankly, I didn't talk to individual congressmen or whatever, unless they were people who were on our committees, ways and means, or they were a senator on finance. And that's just not how things are handled there. It's all sort of choreographed and you go up and visit them or whatever. So, and this was a congressman we didn't know who wasn't, he wasn't on ways and means or on appropriations or something that was a committee of jurisdiction. But okay, I said, well, I, I was in between me. I said, well, put him through. So he gets on the phone and he immediately starts swearing at me about some, <laughs> something that had been handled uh, inappropriately sought and, 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 and uh, very, very rough. Um, so you know who that guy was? Take a guess. Joe Biden. Was two, no, 2004. No, it was Anthony Weiner. Anthony Weiner. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so it was no surprise to me that when Weiner got in trouble, nobody protected him. People, uh. did, not, people did not like Anthony Weiner. His own people did not like him. And people who work with Andrew Cuomo do not like him. And that's the mm. beginning and the end of this story. Oh, good point. Yeah. yeah. Great story. Thank you. So he's he's going to really crumble from the inside out. Yes. There's and nobody you, there. Who's standing up and protecting him right now? Not anybody. They, and they, the other dynamic here, you talk about yeah. the sex stuff. The reason that they're, um, there's, I agree with those who are commenting saying there's sort of a, a pass he's being given because they feel that they were too tough on Franken and Franken got chased off. Uh, uh, when, when he maybe shouldn't have been. So right, yeah. I, it's a complicated dynamic right now. Well, I, I, I think uh, part of Cuomo's problem was he took too many giant steps away from the center. And he was going to go after the president. He was going to bring the president down. When you do those kind of things, you leave uh, holes, and something else will fill that gap and work against you. And you can see the same thing with the governors out west and down south. And well, and we've seen the same thing place. with, uh, with yeah. our own governor. The legislature governor has been yeah. after her when you walk away, in, in a bet. very big way trying to curb her executive authority right. over yeah. uh, emergencies. But have they personalized it for I'm not, you know, I'm, I follow it at the national level in terms of she's pretty well known, but I don't I don't follow it, obviously, as closely as the three of you do, but do people dislike her personally? So there's a lot of people who dislike Cuomo personally. That's the difference. No, her, her approval ratings uh, remain pretty high. They're higher than Biden's in Michigan. They've moved from 51 yeah, down to 49 yeah. over the last, uh, this is what I read the last couple of days, 51% to 49%. 
Where, no, uh, I did. I did not respect. realize Cuomo was so personally disliked in New York. I mean, I I, I saw the not by the people, I, not by the people, but by the by the but, by the folks who work with them. Yeah, I, I did not. I did not quite realize that. Yeah. Well, he's mean. He's mean. I think is what it is. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. he's mean. Well, he was. I mean, I think early in the primary season, there there were some folks talking that suggesting he maybe he should have run for president in two thousand twenty. You know, I mean, I recall his name being tossed around at least by by some people. But yeah, who knows? Right. Well, when you when you uh, take that big a swath out of the national spotlight. Um, yeah. you should be careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah. Well, this goes back, Tom, you started this show t- talking about, uh, oh, the pandemic and everything. Look at the governor of uh, California. He's in trouble because yes. people think he's a hypocrite. It's just, yeah, he, it's, might, he might be facing a recall. Right. Yeah. They right. have the 100,000 votes that you need uh, to implement. Uh, get it on the ballot, yeah. Yeah, get them on the ballot. Well, here's one I've been looking forward to uh, to bringing up, and, and I talked about this a little bit earlier today with um, uh, Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint when we were talking about the economy. But now that con- uh, Democrats control the White House and Congress, President Joe Biden and other party leaders are pushing to spend big to revive the economy and address income equality or inequality, rather. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Washington uh, Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal, um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and Pennsylvania Representative Brendan Boyle want the ultra-wealthy to pay for it. The three Democrats unveiled the Ultra-Millionaire Tax Act on Monday. It would levy a 2% annual tax on the net worth of households and trusts between $50 million and $1 billion, as well as a 1% annual surtax on, a set, on assets above $1 billion for a 3% tax overall on billionaires. The controversial proposal, which is co-sponsored by who else? Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and others, is similar to the one Warren pitched in 2019 as a Democratic primary candidate. Taxing the rich served as a primary way for Warren and Sanders to fund their plans to expand health coverage, child care, and other proposals when they were vying for the primary nomination. Is this so-called wealth tax a necessary move to reduce the nation's mounting debt? It'll help. That's what I, I we want to do. We want to bring that debt down. And the, uh, the people who will also be impacted are those that we least uh, expect to be impacted. And those are athletes. Look at the homes that they live in. My God, if you can live in homes like that, you can pay more taxes. But, but as Chris Douglas pointed out, trying to measure the net worth rather than the income is going to be a pretty tricky kind of thing. And, and First of all, I'm not sure it's got any chance of passing considering how close the, no. the balance is in the Senate. But, I mean, just the administration of it can be, it strikes me as pretty tricky. Based and I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm for... Uh, Taxing the wealthy—that for killing them, I, you know. I, but I it, but is it killing them, or are we returning to levels that existed once before? Turning to levels, then I should say that. But well, uh, I mean, we, we we used to have we used to have what at one level. Um, uh, Mark can answer this. Didn't we have a ninety percent tax on income at one point back in the fifties, and at some levels, the fifties and sixties. 
and right. that's we, come down dramatically. We've had a higher income uh, tax levels. Yes, that's for sure. If I, to weigh in on this time, I I do think the point of administrability is is an issue. Uh, if you've got a uh, hundred million dollars or five hundred million or billions, uh, typically you don't just have a Vanguard uh, index fund. If you had a Vanguard index fund, it would be very easy to uh, assess the tax on that. But you've got lots of interests that are extremely difficult to value. Uh, uh, I'll go back to the IRS again. One issue, one thing we had, we had an arts advisory committee, which were independent people, curators of collections. And they would, they would, without knowing what the purpose of the valuation was, value a piece of art that and and obviously if it was uh being given to a museum then the taxpayer wanted a very high valuation on the painting if it was <laughs> yeah. part if it was part of the estate of the taxpayer they wanted to show a low valuation so <laughs> the, these experts yeah. would would come in and assess a piece of of art and reach a judgment, but they wouldn't know which, what was the treatment that was desired on the part of the taxpayer. And that's how they tried, that's how the service tried to be fair about this. But how do you value a business? Uh, that's uh, a lot of this will be business interests. So, so that's one issue. Uh, the, the other point that, that uh, I, I would make on this is I, where I think that the wealth stuff will go, I think there'll be maybe some adjustment in the rates, but I do think there will be more of a move to tax capital gains at the same rates as ordinary income because people will make an argument that says, look, I don't care where you get the money. Money is money, and we shouldn't be taxing the working man more than the, than the person who's clipping coupons, so to speak. So I would, if I would see over time, they'd do some sort of donut hole that say if you've got capital gains income over X, then that's taxed at higher rates. That's where I think it'll go. I think we'll be reluctant to move towards the wealth tax. Uh, it may come in time, but I think it'll take a while in the, in the valuation issues. I was going to say, isn't that whole issue of evaluating, uh, evaluating companies and, and that worth part of the issue that Trump is facing in the uh, New York courts in terms of how he, how he valued the, the, the net worth of his various companies, the, the challenges he's facing there? I think that's in there, um, and it's and part of that is about conservation easements and different things. Where yeah, yeah. It, there are a lot of tricky. There are a lot of very tricky issues here, and um, I, I can remember I used to talk about this with your former senator Carl Levin, who was uh, was for my money he was the smartest guy in the Senate, and uh, you know you talk about the fact that just because somebody's litigating somebody with the IRS doesn't mean for instance, that they shouldn't be able to do business with the government. There was a suggestion made that, you know, if you're, you're, you have taxes that are passed due or whatever else has been an assessment, that maybe they shouldn't be able to be government contractors. And the point I made was I said, you have a right to litigate positions until they've been disposed of. And uh, that's how we solve these things. They, mm -hmm. they, and and they, take, they take years. And so... Uh, we'll see. I mean, what the what the district attorney in Manhattan is doing is looking. Are there any criminal issues? Of, they're not going to. They won't be able to get Trump. I would think on tax stuff, but they'll. They might. They, the fraud charges 
you know, were there misleading representations in uh, in loan, uh, if you will, in loan documents or whatever else? Mm-hmm. That's that's probably a lot easier to prove than, than a pure valuation question, Paul, is what I would say. Yeah. Do you think this wealth tax has a chance of maybe, going anywhere? But I, maybe, but I think it's, it's, it's a steep climb. As I say, I think there'll be more of a look at doing something on capital gains. Yeah, I, I think that's probably more saleable. Uh, I mean, just looking at the makeup of particularly the Senate, I just don't see them getting the, a clear majority there. I can see a couple of Democrats breaking away, and that's all you need. In a uh, critical voting rights case, conservative Supreme Court justices on Tuesday suggested they were ready to uphold two provisions of an Arizona voting law that Democrats argue violate the historic Voting Rights Act. Supporters of voting rights are fearful that the court's new 6-3 to solidified conservative majority will weaken a key provision of the act that prohibits laws that result in racial discrimination. For over two hours of telephonic arguments, the justices grappled not only with the Arizona law at hand, but with a standard that courts should apply when considering such laws going forward. Lawyers challenging the provisions came under consistent attack in various forms from all of the conservatives on the court who seemed skeptical of the tests put forward by a lawyer representing the Democratic National Committee. Are Democrats preemptively assuming defeat, especially considering the way the Supremes have ruled so far? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I they should not. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, there have been a few, you know, even though it's a conservative majority, there have been a few, I guess I'd call them surprises out of this court, especially on some Trump-related issues in the last couple of mm-hmm. months. So I, I'm i not so sure. I'm not so sure. I, I'm not so sure either. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. I, I think that uh, if they don't uh, create any more shenanigans that uh, reduce their uh position, their stable positions, they would probably write this out and do well. And, but they gotta be they gotta be certain that what they are doing and what they're saying resonate with most of the people. They gotta get away from that partisan stuff and, and uh, the race stuff that's driving this country to madness. Uh, the Democrats need to watch that. And they're using <clears throat> people of color to do that. Everything is based on race, and it's so disconcerting. But I I think um, that Democrats have, uh, you know, since the confirmations of the the three most recent Supreme Court justices, have been assuming that they were going to vote certain ways, and they've been uh, somewhat surprising in how... um, how much more adherent to uh, rule of law that these justices have been, conservative or not. And, you know, I think, Tom, I think one one reason for that may be the fact that there was so much controversy over some of the appointments. The court wants to show it's truly an in, independent branch and not just the pawn of the executive. So I think they may almost be leaning in, on occasion in the other direction to make make it clear that they are the third branch of government and not 
just, or, uh, or maybe they've been telling people that that's where they were coming from all along, and people just didn't listen to it. Yeah, maybe yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. I think all of the the kerfuffle of uh, nomination and confirmation, advising consent, and so on, um, it gets so caught up in the political that that a lot of these guys are really guys and you know men and women are much more about being jurists than they are advancing a political agenda. Yeah. And yeah. what's interesting, too, is that a number of Supreme Court justices over the years have kind of changed and evolved once they got on the court. They, they may have come on the court as one thing, whether liberal or conservative, but once they got on the Supreme Court, all of a sudden they they looked at the world in a different way, and, and there's more than a few examples where you saw their views begin to change. and. So some who, who were considered to be liberal became more conservative, and some went the other direction as well. So it's, it's these folks are not necessarily locked in forever to, to their initial labels. So uh, what, what are what, the? Go ahead. Uh, what what I was going to add to this was that um, I do think that the Barrett appointment was uh, really important, and I think that as a group, the conservatives. Um, have a lot more deference to states' rights, and uh, if you will, and that you know the this whole question of where where in the Constitution does the power lie on specific uh, issues, if you will, and I think you saw that in the aftermath of the election, where they uh, yeah. they they totally uh, said we're not getting involved in these issues. These are issues that are political issues that are are left at the states. The states figure out how to run an election. Uh, that's a little bit different from what I said earlier. That I think that you ought to have national standards to some degree about about um, yeah. about um, about federal elections, but that doesn't mean you can necessarily impose them. You can you can get some sort of compact, and people can do the same thing. So, that, so that's one point, and and that also means. But when you get to the voting rights piece of this, and this is where you do get controversial because of what, what Henry's talking about the the prism of race. Uh, I think there's a reluctance to use the federal power, if you will, uh, to intervene. I mean, uh, you still got places all over the country where there are consent decrees that have existed for decades on certain things. And uh, I don't think anybody who anybody who's been in a community where that's the case thinks that that's a that's a good outcome. It may be a necessary outcome in certain circumstances, but. The idea that things just stay in place for decades and decades, uh, it's, a, it's a very, it's a difficult uh, fix, if you will. And I think that as a group, the conservatives are reluctant to, to continue to empower the federal government on certain of these issues. You know, I, I know you've got to go to break real quickly, but I wanted to say this before we leave this conversation. But one of the Supreme Court justices that was most favorable to me and an enigma then, as he is now, was Earl Warren, uh, who presented the case in 1954 to desegregate schools. Mm-hmm. Now, where, do you, where out of all of this, this, uh, uh, this dilemma and uh, confusion between race and uh, gender and all of that stuff, how did he come out of that so clean? and so determined to make sure that the Supreme Court made that decision in the favor of 
desegregating schools. All by and, himself, probably. And you were right. We're going hey. to break. <laughs> this is the Unknown <laughs> Comics. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. 
Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, for our final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program, the section I like to refer to as the coveted X-Files, where we talk about those weird and wacky uh, stories, conspiracy theories that uh, sometimes are hard to tell from the the actual headlines. (laughs) In fact, we have one that was suggested by Paul coming up in, in just a moment or two. Uh, Brooklyn's famed Peter Luger Steakhouse has teamed with Madame Trousseau's, or Tussauds uh, to have celebrity wax figures mingle with patrons promoting the easing of coronavirus pandemic restrictions on indoor dining in New York City. Uh, figures on loan from uh, Madame Tussauds uh, include Michael Strahan, Jimmy Fallon, Al Roker, and Audrey Hepburn and Holly Golightly of Breakfast at Tiffany's Mode. We thought this would be a fun, safe way to fill some of the seats that need to remain empty as we continue to fight the pandemic, (laughs) said Restaurant Vice President Daniel Turtel. As of Friday, restaurants in the city were allowed to fill 35% of their indoor seats, up from 25% previously. The restaurant, in business for more than 130 years, will keep the mannequins until Monday. After that, they'll return to the recently reopened uh, Madame Tussauds in uh, Midtown Manhattan. Is this better than cardboard cutouts at the ballpark? <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably be more, more yeah. entertaining than. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's here's one that Paul suggested uh, might be something we talked about this week but that maybe it fit better in the X-Files. After more than three years of Donald Trump not taking down satanic pedophiles and the deep state working against him, losing the election, then failing to order mass executions at Joe Biden's inauguration, followers of the QAnon conspiracy theory are now claiming March 4th as the next significant date for the movement. Supporters of the radical conspiracy now believe that March 4th, which is tomorrow, will be the day that Trump will still somehow be sworn in as president, seemingly undeterred by the January 20th ceremony, after which Biden entered the White House and all their other predictions since late 2017 having failed. The theory around March 4th has been bubbling since January as QAnon found new ways to suggest, quote, the plan, unquote, is still in place, despite Trump no longer being president and that supporters just need to keep faith. So who will be president on March 5th? 
<laughs> Joe Biden. <laughs> I think so. Unless there's those uh, Jewish space laser beams coming into play or something. I don't know. <laughs> this is a crazy time. You know, the strangest thing about that theory was that they, I think at least one version I read said that, that Trump was going to be the 19th president. And somehow, does that mean all the others between what, uh, what Hayes and now are, are in Vela? I, I don't know where that that's, number that's came one from. Of the, that's, that number that's one of those weird Uh-oh. things like leap year, Paul. You know, if your birthday is on February 29th, you know, do you only celebrate a birthday that, once every it, four years? And, and I, I think it has something to do with the date of the inauguration. And yeah, only... Well, we, now we, we went to the January 20th in the 1930s with FDR, but even then, I, I, don't, I don't know where that 19th comes from, so, but I've heard it mentioned a few times when these, some articles about this QAnon stuff, and, and I, I'm not sure, sure what, if there's any logic to it at all. I'm not sure what the number it refers to. to. To me, it's like the old... Uh, broken clock is right twice a day. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, it's like the people predicting the end of the world. Sooner or later, these people are going to be right about something. (laughs) 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 Right. Well, here's, here's one that got to me. Six Dr. Seuss books will no longer be published because they portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong the business that preserves the the author's legacy said. The titles are and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, if I ran the zoo, McElligot's Pool, uh, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Eggs Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. Now, I am not familiar with any of these books, by the way. Um, not that I'm not very familiar with a lot of other Dr. Seuss books, but in a statement, Dr. Seuss Enterprises said it made the decision after consulting educators and reviewing its catalog. Ceasing sales of these books is only part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families, it said. The announcement was made uh, Tuesday, yesterday actually, the uh, uh, the birthday of the famed children's book author. Um, has cancel culture now come to the land of old Dr. Seuss's green eggs and green ham? Uh, maybe I it has. Gone, go, ahead. go ahead. I, I was going to say, I haven't gone back and looked at those books, but I, I just think uh, we, we are going too far. I mean, my I'm sure you talked about this in the past, the shows that I've... Uh, the, the, the uh, San Francisco school board getting rid of Paul Revere. My goodness. I mean, as a, we're, we've just got to slow down on some of this stuff. And I, I, I've got, I haven't looked at these books in question, but those books are, you know, you're free enough to not publish what you want, but we're, we're doing these things very quickly. And sometimes they're ill-considered. Paul, what did you start say, to say? I was going to say, having said that, I, again, I was when I first heard that, I kind of shrugged it off. And I, at least I noticed, for what it's worth, I saw on Facebook, some people did post the pictures that were in those books. And they were really rather cartoonish images of both black people and Chinese people that uh, go back back to the 19th century. I, I did not realize those images were in there. So I, I, I was surprised by the, the, the characterization. If, if it's an accurate portrayal that I saw, I was surprised by what I saw in, the, in, in, in at least in one cartoon 
that was posted on Facebook out of one of the Dr. Seuss books. Well, that's right, and they may have done a very thorough job of this, but the, I think you're raising a broader question, Tom. And, uh, yeah, yeah, again, I, my, my, that was my first reaction when I first heard about that until I saw that image, I don't know. Right. Well, for, for what it's worth, and, and for anybody that's uh, curious or interested, um, I, I wrote an essay a, a few years ago where I um, nominated uh, Dr. Seuss to become president of the United States, and I wrote um, as best I could in his style what I thought his inauguration address might be like. <laughs> and I, it came up in my uh, past posts on uh, Facebook yesterday, so I reposted. Uh, there's an excerpt uh, from the uh, Dr. Seuss inauguration <laughs> speech in honor of his birthday yesterday on my Facebook page if, if anybody wants to take a look at it. Um, Can you read a second segment right now? I, I don't. I don't have it in front of me where I could, oh. uh, where I could get at okay. it very quickly. At least not in the time we have. Mm -hmm. um, and for what it's worth, somebody did also say that Seuss's views had changed over time in, in his own life as well. So, whatever he did early on may not have reflected his later life. Yeah, and you got to remember those cartoons. Ref reflected what people thought at the time, what they, how they believed, and how they treated and respected other people. That, there's nothing wrong with that. that he was representing how people were at the time that he was living in. What people yeah, believed. No, they were part that was how society was. You know. You know and there's a difference, I, I, again, because uh, I haven't looked at it the way Paul has, look at the individual books, so I'm not going to quibble with those individual decisions, but where where I get more concerned about things is when textbooks are changed, and it, yeah. it, you've got to be just very careful on what you're teaching kids and everything else, so I get that. I mean, if a school says we're not going to use Dr. Seuss, fair enough, on certain books, uh, this book's better than that book, but uh, it's just a, there's a there's a rush that's taking place right now that's, that uh, maybe it's a little too fast on certain things. To rewrite history, I'm opposed to. I am absolutely opposed to. That's how we were, and and we need to accept responsibility for changing those things in our own generation that don't fit right. our generation. Well, we're going to have to uh, end it there, but uh, thank you all. Mark Everson uh, from Mississippi, uh, former... Uh, high-ranking uh, government official under two uh, presidents, Reagan and Bush. Mark, it's always a pleasure. I hope you'll uh, want to join us again. Certainly, gentlemen. Thank have you, a, Mark. Have a great day. Good talking to you, Mark. It's good to have you here. Yes, and, I enjoyed it, Mark. And, and of course, uh, where would be we be without our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter? Thank you, guys. Thank you, Paul. You bet. Thank All you, right. Henry. Have a good, have a good uh, day. You Take too. care, everybody. Bye-bye. All right. And with that, uh, I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the show. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.